Hey everybody, Dave DeBow here with another episode of the Property Profits Real Estate Podcast. And if you are a mom and pop real estate investor, chances are you've either heard of or you've been confronted with the situation of the big guys, institutional investors coming in and buying stuff up, especially if you're in the multifamily space. And you may be a little frustrated about that. Even if you're in single family homes and whatnot, we've all heard what the big guys are up to. We kind of think what we know what institutional investors are, but maybe we do, maybe we don't. Today's guest is going to give us the lowdown. Mr. Gunnar Branson is very, very familiar with institutional investors. Heck, he's been working in this space for a long time. He's held positions at some pretty big companies. He's consulted with big companies like Wells Fargo and CIBC and Fidelity. He's the CEO of a FIRE, which is an association of international real estate investors who are focused on commercial properties in the States. And he's, Gunnar, if I'm not mistaken, you've been on TEDx, you've been on TV, you've been all over the place. And here you are on my show. Welcome. Glad That's to have right. you. You know, finally, I got to be on your show after I know. You know well, we, we wanted you to get practiced. So I wanted yeah. you to get practiced up first, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So I, I think you're ready and you're worthy. So here you are. Welcome to the show. I'm just joking, Gunnar. So thank you very much for this. If you don't mind, I know this is going to sound like a very simple question, but what is your definition of an institutional investor when it comes to real estate stuff? Well, I mean, that, that's an excellent question, actually, because it's one of those terms that that can be somewhat flexible depending on who's defining it. But generally speaking, you're talking about pension plans. You're talking about insurance companies, banks, sovereign wealth groups, some family offices, foundations. So essentially, when you think an institutional investor, you're talking about someone that their whole meaning of life is to invest for the long term and to protect the constituents, think the pensioners and their income over not just the next five years or 10 years, but over the next 20 years, 30 years, 40, 50 years. So they have a much longer time scale that they're looking at, and they have a fiduciary responsibility to those shareholders, whomever they may be. So they tend to be very conservative. They also tend to be slow moving giants, but when they move, they can move with quite a lot of money at once. But it really, they are acting on behalf of people, people's retirements mm. at the end of the day. So even if you're talking about Blackstone, which is one of our members and, and certainly is a, a very well-known group in the United States, investment manager, but they're actually, they're they're acting on behalf of people's 401ks at the end of the day or large institutions that are investing with them, like pension plans, insurance companies, foundations, et cetera. So it, it's an ecosystem that's designed really to a certain extent, whether you agree with it or not, but it's an ecosystem that is designed to benefit regular people. And no pension plans are probably stronger in the world than the Canadian pension plans in terms of what they're doing. And they are extraordinarily active in the US real estate market. Actually, they are the largest non-US investor in US real estate are Interesting. the Canadian pension plans. Very, uh, very so that's an institution, if that helps. Maybe I gave you too much information. but No, no, that, that, gives, that helps me, that's for sure. So when it comes to these kind of institutional investors, what is, you know, I know there's a ton of different stuff they tend to be investing in when it comes to real estate, but what would you say is, is like the primary focus for most of them? What, what primary asset class are they investing in? Well, that's an interesting question because it's changing. Okay. So traditionally, for decades, the institutional investor's primary interest was office and everything else was kind of a secondary appeal. What mm -hmm. they wanted were these large 
commercial real estate, commercial office buildings in in central business districts in the major gateway markets around the world. I can I can see that taking a hit recently. That's for well, sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's part yeah. of it. But part of it is that part of what's been happening is not just COVID. Mm-hmm. It's that the long term lease is really what they were investing in. So it was typical for twenty plus year leases for large office tenants in these these best of the best buildings. So you had a very stable asset. You had something where the the tenancy didn't flip over a lot, where you didn't have to worry about it every year like you do in multifamily, and where you had a very tangible asset that had value, not just for 10 years, but for 100 years, perhaps, in some of these markets, especially in the larger markets like London, New York, and and, in Toronto, et cetera, that you have much more staying power there. But that has been changing, especially over the last 10 years, into residential. So again, it's not just COVID. It's something that's been going on for a long time. The demand for residential has been increasing. The supply has not been coming online, especially right. in markets like the United States, but other markets around the world as well. And starting around 10, 12 years ago, you started to see large institutional players buying up single family as we came out of the great financial crisis. So you know, one of the major players in that space is Blackstone coming in and saying, all right, we can turn these into rental homes. And they're really uh, treating it as if it's a horizontal apartment building. And in <laughs> so some they're cases, buying entire neighborhoods kind of thing, right? To... In some cases, yes. Yeah. Sometimes they're just doing bits and pieces. Sometimes they're even developing for rental. So they're developing brand new housing developments that are intended to be rental from the beginning. And there is a, a certain segment of the population that this is much more accessible. And you think about it, Younger generations are buying less. And part of that is because of the great financial crisis and the lessons that we learned there and maybe lifelong renters. But they're still having children, a few of them, and they they still are looking for in certain markets, a certain lifestyle where they can have a little house and L- a little picket fence, even if they're Absolutely. renting. Absolutely. Yeah. But have the advantages of not having to worry about maintaining it, not having to worry about the water heater, that sort of thing. So I think there is an appeal there. It, it, it's, not, it's not for everyone. Some people want to own their own home. They want to have a mortgage. And I understand that. But you are seeing much more activity in residential generally. And in fact, it's more than half now of the of the activity that they're doing on the go forward basis. So every year we track, we ask people, what asset classes are you investing in? Are you most interested in? At the top of the list is multifamily. And it's been that way for a few years now. At the bottom of the list is retail, but only a step up from retail is office. Now, a big part of that, office is still performing. And it's not they're not divesting from office. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's so much more uncertain right now. We don't know going forward how people are going to use offices, especially in a post-COVID world where half of the population is now working from home, somewhere around half. And that's up from like 8% before COVID. So a huge migratory shift that has occurred. Now, people will return to the office, but we don't know how. And it may require more capital expenditures. It does add risk. Certain assets will be more popular than they might have been in the past or less popular. So I think what you're seeing in terms of repression of their desire to buy more office, some of that has to do with the uncertainty. But some of it has to do with the attractiveness of residential. And that's that's really what's driving that. So, Gunnar, we were talking about retails at the very bottom. Office space isn't much higher. Residential is pretty much... Is that the the main thing these big guys are focusing on? Or are they starting to look at, I know self-storage facilities were popular, certain cases, mobile home parks I've heard of. What what are some of the other asset classes 
the big guys are starting to pay more attention to. Well, certainly yes to everything that you mentioned. You know, industrial logistics continues to be very popular. Mm-hmm. Although I think there's a little bit of a, you know, it's not quite as easy as maybe it was a year ago to make those kinds of investments and those returns. You're not seeing the same kind of rapaciousness of the Amazons of the world trying to build more and more industrial logistics facilities. But it's still a very healthy place. You're seeing some people investing, institutional investors investing in movie studios has mm-hmm. become a, a growing business in great part because it's not just in Hollywood. It's all all over the world and secondary markets and has become a, a viable business. Data centers are really popular. Hard to do because you have to really understand that market, but data centers have incredible yield. Student housing continues to be a, a popular asset class, not as popular as it was maybe 20 years ago, but it's it, it continues to be, but again, it's residential. You know, It's a form right. of residential that people are, are working on and certainly self-storage is one of those those asset classes and and the appeal of of manufactured housing is constraint on supply it's really hard to build another mobile home park down the street mm-hmm. from where other people are they don't want to have new ones and yet it's affordable housing and that's the one thing we need the most of so institutional investors are particularly concerned about acquiring affordable housing. They want more and more of it. Not necessarily subsidized housing, but housing that's really focused on that working class population. We really need it where there's not enough of it in the States. And and a lot of the pressure right now in terms of housing markets is because we don't have enough affordable housing near where the work is and near where things are. And even with the remote work that's occurring, there is such a demand for housing in places where it's just simply not affordable anymore. Wow. That's another fantastic idea. Hold on to that thought for a sec. We'll be right back. Now, are you a real estate investor who's run out of cash or credit to grow your portfolio? Are you looking to grow your portfolio using other people's money and raising capital? Well, I want to show you how to raise six figures or more in six weeks or less at my upcoming Investor Attraction Workshop. You can get your ticket and find out all about it at InvestorAttractionWorkshop.com. We're going to spend a full day taking a deep dive into this roadmap that I've used to raise millions for my deals, and I've helped other people just like you cumulatively raise hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars for their deals as well. So again, you can check that out at InvestorAttractionWorkshop.com. And as a loyal listener to the podcast, you'll get 50% off your ticket when you use the discount code PODCAST. That's right, discount code PODCAST at InvestorAttractionWorkshop.com. See you at the next workshop. So Gunnar, a lot of small mom and pop type investors get freaked out thinking that they're in competition with the institutional investors eventually, especially when they started buying single family homes. It's like, oh crap, now they're getting into that too. Yeah. (laughs) And they're going to completely push us out. So You've got a different perspective on this. Where do you see the the little guy having the big advantage over the big guys? Well, I mean, part of it is that they are in different markets. To a certain extent, the institutional investor has a really hard time engaging with what they consider to be small transactions. So you get under $50 million and it's just very hard for them to do. They have to work at scale. So even as they're doing single family, they're doing it at scale. That's an important thing to keep in mind. They have to do it at a larger amount or else they can't afford to do it. They just don't have the infrastructure for it. A lot of smaller groups have actually looked to institutional investors as, you know, as as an exit, as a way to say, you know, I'm going to create a portfolio. I'm going to then, you know, sell that portfolio to a larger player. And that tends to be how that works. I think smaller players are able to be a little bit more 
entrepreneurial, certainly, can experiment with new concepts and new strategies that although the larger players are very aware of them and are paying close attention to what's happening in terms of new ways of thinking about mixed use and things like that, which has become a much a very popular area for people to focus in on. Because I think mixed use, frankly, has a little bit more staying power and a better yield than segmenting everything out by asset class, where mm. you're really bringing a live, work, play kind of environment, I think is becoming more and more valuable to people, even as we are working from home with our computers and Zoom calls and all that sort of thing. But I think small players are able to move a little bit more quickly at a smaller scale. But quite honestly, most of the innovation needs to take place at a small scale before it gets to the kind of the large. But you know, to a certain extent, think of institutional players really as these large creatures that although they can be somewhat nimble because of the people that are working inside these companies, they are really not interested in taking away the business of the mom and pops. If anything, they're hoping the mom and pops will aggregate and sell their portfolios up to them as they're as they're doing it. Now, the other part that institutions make it hard is they lock things down for a long period of time. Right. They are not as, and, and one of the reasons why they can sometimes compress yield a little bit where they're not looking for the same kind of returns, perhaps that a smaller player is, is that they're not looking for five years. They're, they're not looking for 10 years in many cases. I have a member, it's a large sovereign group. They seriously talk about 250 years as their time scale. They're looking for buildings that they can hold for a very, very long time. What, what does that even mean, a sovereign group? <laughs> they represent a country's wealth. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you're so, investing for the, the realm of Brunei or something like that. That's that's basically correct. Yeah. Correct. I mean, you, you have those kinds of groups. And, you know, again, I don't think this group. I don't know if, well, none of us will be around to see if their 250-year investment, how that's going to play out. But they're trying to enforce, I think, a kind of thinking that's more long-term mm. and to understand that it matters from that standpoint. And many of these groups have been around for hundreds of years. So they already have a history of looking at that, and it's been beneficial for their groups. That, I think, is an important way of looking at real estate. Real estate, really, if you build a large office building, you're not going to get a return on your investment, technically, for a generation. It, take, it takes so much capital in order to create a, a larger building that you just don't get the money back. Even a home doesn't really return very quickly. It depends on you selling it. It depends mm -hmm. on you seeing a, a, you know appreciation. If you're doing rental property, the amount of time it takes you just from a cash flow to get your money back is going to take a long time. So leverage is used certainly as a way to kind of compress time for people. Right. But also, frankly, the ability to buy and sell and the ability to, to kind of realize whatever appreciation is there in a shorter time frame, less than 10 years. And that has been very beneficial, especially in markets where things are going up. But obviously, as the working age population is leveling out in North America, I think that is becoming less of a certainty in terms of the same kind of rapid growth we've seen over the last several decades. It's harder to pick where those spots are. And I think it's harder for the mom and pops and it's harder for the big guys as well, as they're trying to figure out where are those areas that are going to experience growth. And growth is really what we invest into as real estate investors. It's hard to make money in a shrinking market. It's still possible, but it's harder. So that's that's kind of how they look at it. And, and that's an important thing to think about. Think of them as time. They, they think about time in a different way than a mom and pop thinks about time. Yeah, most definitely. So speaking of that, if you were advising a mom and pop real estate investor on how best to kind of ride along on the coattails of some of these big guys, is there some sort of a McDonald's or Walmart effect, you know, where <laughs> I remember the small town I grew up in, McDonald's came to town, they picked a spot that everybody else thought was just dumb, and they built their McDonald's there. And then voila, fast forward a decade or two, and everything's grown up kind of around there. Is is there the way that we can do that 
with these big institutional investors and ride along and take a ride for the ride? No, there's no question. I mean, I think certainly the, the power of scale and and what that does and to be able to follow what they're doing. Also, remember, they have some pretty incredible research groups, economists that are really trying to to really capture the data. Real estate's always been kind of a gut business. You know, I feel this way and I think this is going to work. But the McDonald's of the world, they saw themselves as a real estate company. Right. They were examining the real estate, the value of every corner to understand where they should invest and where they should put a new store. The same is true of Starbucks. Starbucks has been actually a company that a lot of investors have followed. Oh, there's a Starbucks in that neighborhood. It means I can I can do something there when I didn't think I could before. And what they're relying on is the research capability of and and the investment you know committee of uh, Starbucks as a company. You can do the same thing with other institutions. One way to do that is actually to look at the kind of research that they're publishing. A lot of this is public information, and you know I do encourage. We actually have. Uh, on our website at afire.org, research resources. We basically point to a lot of the different kinds of resources that are out there for investors to be able to understand the market and be able to start using data more than we have perhaps as an industry in the past. Our journal, which comes out three times a year, just some very provocative pieces from our members as well as guests that we bring on, really emphasizing data, really emphasizing this is not what you think it is. You know, really kind of challenging everyone to think differently about what's happening and where things are going. Demographics, an essential part of how institutional investors look at real estate, because again, they're looking at scale. They're trying to understand where the growth is, where the people are, what they're doing. So the science of demographics has become so much more powerful for real estate in the last 30 years. And we've seen that growth in, in, the, in the last few decades. And taking advantage of it, I think, is a great idea. So I would recommend to your listeners, go to our website, go to the research Perfect. section. And and again, it's not just us. It's it's all sorts of other groups that you can take a look at. And uh, we do publish a couple of surveys every year that give you an idea of where our the, the institutional investment, the global institutional investors are looking and what they're thinking about, what their concerns are, et cetera. So there are some insights that are just as good for someone who's, who's operating a couple of three flats or something like that to someone who's operating a large portfolio. And I, I think that can be very valuable. Gunnar, that's fantastic. So again, that's afire.org. Go check that out. We'll put that in the show notes. Gunnar, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking some time and enlightening us about how the big guys operate, how they think, and how we can take a ride along on the coattails as well. I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. It's a real pleasure. Remember, those big guys still have to put their pants on one leg at a time, just like everyone else. So <laughs> thanks, Dave. All right, everybody. Take care. We'll see you on the next episode. Well, hey there. Thanks for tuning into the Property Profits Podcast. If you like this episode, that's great. Please go ahead and subscribe on iTunes, give us a good review. That'd be awesome. I appreciate that. And if you're looking to attract investors and raise capital for your deals, then I'm going to invite you to get a complimentary copy of my newest book right back there. There it is. The Money Partner Formula. You can get a PDF version at InvestorAttractionBook.com. Again, InvestorAttractionBook.com. Take care.